Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night. Come on into the cabin, and I hope you brought your pens, pencils, or typing devices. We've kept our submissions closed for many months now, to allow our extensive backlog to dwindle down. As I've mentioned a time or two before, we've had stories that languished in our queue for years. Yes, that's right, more than one year. Editorial staff feels that this can be a bit of a disservice to the eager author who wants to hear someone read her story out to Tales to Terrify's audience. Our goal has been to cut down the turnaround time between submission to an ideal of 90 days or a high end of six months. Designs can get away with an even shorter turnaround time between acceptance and a story and publication because they don't need to find an unpaid narrator to read the story. We don't have that luxury, so our turnaround time is always going to be a bit slower. But enough of how the sausage is made. The important question for you must be when are submissions going to open up? We're shooting for a two-week period in November to test the waters. I also want to remark that we'll be refining our submission guidelines. As this episode airs, we should still have our old guidelines posted, but make sure to read those once we open up submissions. Some of the notable changes that we'll be making is that we've already increased the minimum word count, which excludes nearly everything that qualifies as flash fiction. From a production standpoint, I find it tedious to read author bio, then narrator bio, and realize both of those took more time than the actual story itself. We've been moving away from the ultra-short stories for months and months, so you haven't heard many of those recently anyway. We do have a few that will air over the next few months. Uh, in fact, I'll make sure to give you one tonight. 
were also having a conversation about file formats for submissions. I had been pushing for plain text files, but I was shouted down by the show's two editors who actually have to work with those files. <laughs> it's, it's been looking like we'll settle on rich text files. Why not Microsoft Word.doc files? We have narrators that don't have Microsoft Word. Despite Word's surprisingly continuous ubiquity in 2016, not everyone uses it. And Word can export to rich text, and every semi-modern computer can open those up. The spirit of the stories that we accept will stay the same. A well-written story that we feel will translate to being narrated easily. We will also continue to accept stories agnostic of the author, if the submitting author has been published or not before is irrelevant to our process. The author's gender, sexual orientation, political or religious affiliations, national origin, or... Well, you get the point. None of that matters to us. If you can write a good story send it to us. Let's hear a few that have made it in already. First up, a short story from Jay Scherer, author of Time Slingers Season 1 and Illustrated Time Travel Adventure Series. Link will be in the show notes. A wise man scaleth the city of the mighty and casteth down the strength of the confidence thereof. Proverbs twenty-one twenty-two. I'd like to consider myself a cool customer, but tonight my palms are as slick as a used car salesman without a conscience. Private eyes in this city don't last long if their knees knock at the first sign of trouble. Maybe I ought to resign. After this, I may not have to. A discreet sedan with black windows sloshes to a stop next to my coupe. Lightning flashes. Thunder comes as a chaser. Behind me, the Hollywood land sign flickers. Heavy rain hammers my fedora in a vain attempt to drive me deeper into the mud. Time to make up my mind. My left hand holds the easy and lucrative way out. The right hand, the other way, we'll call it the road less traveled, at least by today's rotten moral standards. For now, both hands remain tucked into my coat pockets. The sedan's front door opens. An umbrella fans out. The massive frame of Mayor Solomon Riggs follows. He's covered in a navy blue pinstripe trench coat the size of a tarp, and a bowler is pulled low over his forehead. A pair of fine leather shoes sinks into the mire. He scowls at that. Powerful men who run entire cities must see obdurate weather as anarchy. Mr. Chandler, he says, have you got it? Glad you made it up here safe. Storm and all, I say. Los Angelinos and weather. Sun ain't out. Time to have a heart attack. Me? I miss the snow. It ain't that broken-hearted over you. He stops five paces in front of me and forces a grimy, arrogant smile, like a winning heavyweight boxer after ten rounds and a concussion. A month back, I would have called it genuine, endearing even, the kind of smile that politicians like Riggs flash after a bout of kissing babies. Now all I see is a fat snake licking its fangs. Quite a mouth you've got, Chandler. Just one. Imagine the kind of trouble two eyes and ears gets me into. Cute. The mirth fades. Brass tacks already. You get it? I got it. It's scribbled on a folded note in my left hand. Granted that... 
Between the rain and my sweaty palms, the ink may be smeared past the point of clarity. But the bigger problem is what I discovered while getting it for him, which accounts for what's in my right hand. That's where the moral dilemma comes into play. It's Shakespearean, really. Maybe I should have him pick a hand at random and let fate decide. I hesitate. His expression gets harder by the second. He'll be a stone gargoyle before long. Well? You like duck, Mr. Mayor? What? Duck. Peking duck with plum sauce. Real good eats. His eyebrows pinch so hard it looks like he's only got one. I don't see steam coming out of his ears yet, but that'd be the next logical step. I'd rather not see what happens when Mount Riggs explodes. Cut the small top, Chandler. Give me the name. Of the Chinese joint? Let's see. I feign trying to remember, but how could I forget? It's seared into my brain. All the little Chinese girls tied up in the back room, and the line of creeps outside waiting for a go-round. Makes my stomach turn, thinking about it. My burning pupils snap back up to meet his. The Beijing Palace. You know the place, right? You son of a... He spits. I think the eruption's about to start. But instead he just grins that grotesque grin that makes everybody want to be his pal. You're a good little private dick, ain't you? So what you play? You got a nice bargaining chip now. Think you can extort some extra cash, that it? How much more would it take to buy new memories? More than Howard Hughes has got. Maybe my decision's already made. Problem is, the right choice is weightier. There'll be blowback, a bounty on my head, and a wanted poster on every corner. Not to mention my reputation. Private eyes that turn their customers in don't get many referrals. He takes three long strides, gets right up in my face. His perfume assaults me. Sickeningly sweet stuff. Is this what those girls have to smell when this whale gets on top of them? I fight the urge to puke all over his fancy shoes. He reaches into his coat, pulls out a roll of cash, and then slips it into my breast pocket. That's a grand. Ten times the original score. Now I've paid up. Give me the name of the chump that's blackmailing me. A grand. More than I'd seen all year long tucked neatly into my coat pocket. Snug as a bug in a rug. Feels good, except it's heavy. Hush money weighs more than clean cash. Probably because of all the blood stains. I pull my left hand out and show my palm. He looks down at the folded note, smirks, and takes it. Chuckling, he claps me on the shoulder and then heads back to his sedan. His leather shoes squish through the mud. He pauses at the back door. Too bad you're such a straight shooter, Chandler. You and me could have been real good pals. The revolver appears like the lightning in the clouds behind him, quick and without warning. Thunder booms, so does his peace. The lead stings when it slices through my left arm. My right hand makes its debut, Colt M1903 and all. Like I said, weightier. My gun spits fire. He falls face first into the mud and lies there like a mammoth stuck in Hancock Park's tar pits. I stare and let the rain go on pouring. Maybe he had to draw on me. Had no choice. Maybe neither of us did. 
I tip my hat to fate. I'd rather live with a slug in my arm than have him go on ordering Peking duck and getting away with it. I pull out the wad of cash, stare at it, and then let it roll off the tips of my fingers. It falls all the way to the mud and sits there like the rat who gave it to me. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. That was Jay Scherer's Peking Duck, as read by J.K. Shepler. Jedediah Kalanu Shepler was born in Texas. He spent formative years in Northern California, then returned to Texas to get an honors degree, summa cum laude, in anthropology from the University of Houston. He lives in the traditions of both the European Renaissance and feudal Japan and believes diverse pursuits and interests build keen minds and bodies. He is, consequently, a student of martial arts, a practitioner of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and is a surfer, artist, and filmmaker. He's acted in and produced music videos, as well as served as a rigger, greensman, propsman, and stunt coordinator. He also dabbles in music. Jed has worked in logistics, dog training, security, education, and other jobs, and says that he is not entirely sure he's qualified to do anything, but that he is a great respecter of fine storytelling and of the tellers of tales, and that he is very proud to contribute his narrations. Currently, Jed is working on a book about late 19th and early 20th century glass bottles found in Houston and of the forgotten history that is all around us and just under our feet. He lives in the Houston Heights of Texas and likes cats and dogs, but doesn't have any, and sometimes he scribbles short, humorous movie reviews that no one reads. You can correct that last bit by stopping by his site at downthemoviehole.blogspot.com. Link will be in the show notes. Thank you, Jedediah. Next up will be a longer piece from Felicity Docker. Felicity is no stranger to our cabin or our former digs in the nook. By my count, we have aired four of her stories, the oldest going all the way back to episode 28. Australian writer Felicity Docker is a multiple winner and or finalist for various awards for her writing and critique, including the Ditmar, Kronos, Australian Shadows, and Aurealis Award. Felicity's debut short story collection, Bread and Circuses, was published in June 2012 by Ticonderoga Publications. Along with fellow writers Alan Baxter and Andrew McKiernan, Felicity is a founder and contributing editor at Dark Fiction News and reviews site 13 O'Clock. 
Felicity has had over 30 short stories published in recent years, and in addition to her collection, you can find her work forthcoming in Prime Books' Circus Fantasy Under the Big Top, edited by Ekaterina Sedia. Ticonderoga Publications, The Year's Best Australian Fantasy and Horror, Volume 2, edited by Liz Grizzib and Tally Helene, and the Australian Horror Writers Association's Midnight Echo, Number 8, edited by Marty Young, A.J. Spedding, and Mark Ferrugia. Now, Felicity Dockers, Us, After the House, came back. I pushed my bedroom window open and leaned over the sill, surveying the territory below. A sorry excuse for a garden bed, a few tufts of thirsty grass, and most importantly, a lot of concrete. My window was at least three meters off the ground. It didn't look very high when you stood down there and looked up, but when you were up here looking down, it was frightening. I wasn't sure I'd make the jump in one piece. My hands and feet tingled. It was too much. I couldn't do it. Down the hall, in the kitchen, the noise kicked it up a notch. Banging, scuffling, and fleshy thuds. When women are attacked in movies, they always scream. My mother didn't. She grunted and gasped loudly. Somehow that was worse than screaming. Worse still was the fact that this had been going on for hours now, and I hadn't done anything about it yet. Guilt clotted my veins. Part of it was that I was struggling to accept that it was really happening. Kevin had pushed Mom around before, yelled a lot, hit her a few times, but nothing like this extended brutal assault. Something different was happening tonight, something cold and alien. I was more scared than I'd ever been in my life. There wasn't room in me for all the fear. It overflowed, filled my room, immobilized me. I could smell it in the air, acrid, like burning blood. Earlier in the evening, as my mother sobbed, I'd heard Kevin take a break from beating her, to pick up the phone and calmly order Chinese. When it was delivered, he'd had a polite chat at the door with the driver, then taken the food into the kitchen and taunted my mother while he poured the food all over her and rubbed it into her hair and eyes. I knew because he'd narrated every second of the torture for my benefit as I cowered in my bed, not wanting to listen, but unable to ignore it. He'd also described his actions in amplified, loving detail as he'd broken two brooms over my mother's back and as he'd dragged her outside by her hair, slammed the door on her feet until her toes broke, and then yanked her back inside to punch her teeth out. I'd told Mum last time he hit her that if it happened again, I'd jump out my bedroom window and get the police. I thought she'd beg me not to, but I don't think she believed me. I didn't believe me either. I was too scared to do it, and too scared not to do it. I was stuck. And somewhere, deep down, I was furious. This was all wrong. 
I shouldn't have to protect my mother. It was meant to be the other way around. Sweat trickled down my spine, tickling like spider legs. I'm going to kill you, Kevin told my mother. He didn't shout, didn't even raise his voice. He might have been announcing he was popping out to the shop for some milk for all the stress in his words. But those words carried through the closed kitchen door, down the hall, through my closed bedroom door, and squeezed the air from my lungs. Because he meant it. He was going to kill her, I had no doubt. Had known it all night, really, but had tried not to believe it. It was my twelfth birthday, after all. My stepfather couldn't murder my mother tonight, but he would. And, fair or not, there was no one else here to do anything about it. I had to move. Now! I grabbed my white cotton nightdress from the floor and pulled it over my head and arms. I'd torn it off when I'd gone to bed. It stuck to my skin now, quickly soaking through with sweat. I looked down and saw it was inside out. I knew my hair must be heat-frizzed and tangled into knots. What a mess I was, some hero. I grabbed the window frame and eased myself onto the sill until I sat dangling over the drop below. My legs swung, skinny and pale in the moonlight, and the ground looked impossibly far away. In movies, people rolled when they hit the ground after a big jump. I pictured myself slipping off the sill, plunging through the air, and melting into a graceful somersault upon impact that carried me smoothly to my feet once more, unharmed. Yeah, right. Once again, I reminded myself that this was not a movie. I couldn't do it. I slumped, tears mingling with the perspiration on my cheeks. It hurt so much, this powerlessness, that it stupefied me, provided its own pain relief. My chin dropped to my chest and I stared sightless into space as my body filled up with a glorious floaty feeling, blessed numbness. Then there was an astonishingly loud bang, and my mother did scream at last. The scream cut off before it reached its peak, and a chilling silence descended. The kitchen door was wrenched open, and heavy footsteps rushed down the hall toward my bedroom. Conscious brain shriveled into a ball and released control. Lizard brain took over without words. I launched myself off the windowsill and hurtled toward the ground. I hit hard, but managed a clumsy roll that left a good portion of skin from my bare arms and legs behind me on the concrete. Nothing felt broken, and I stood up, shaking, not with fear now, but with pure adrenaline. Without looking back, I sprinted up the driveway and onto the street. It had to be after midnight, and most of our neighbors' houses were dark, except one across the road. I ran for it and hammered on the door with both fists, panting. The door swung inward, 
a thirty-something man and woman staring out at me in surprise and concern. My stepfather is trying to kill my mother, I said. Please help me. I sat in a soft armchair, tucked under a duna, despite the stifling heat, a cup of steaming Milo in my hands. An old movie played on the TV, a man and woman arguing. The couple who'd let me into their home, Rob and Sarah, they'd told me as they'd ushered me inside, exchanged glances, and Sarah flicked through TV channels until an innocuous cartoon filled the screen. Such kindness in people. Such evil, too. Such a lottery as to which shone through. Rob stood suddenly, striding to the door. Sarah leapt after him. Where are you going? she said. I'm going over there, Rob said, shrugging into a jacket. Sarah clutched his arm, shaking her head. No, it's too dangerous. I can't just sit here and do nothing. The police are on their way, Sarah said. Then it isn't worth Max and Jack waking up to find their daddy has been hurt, or worse, Rob. So they had kids. I bet their little boys never had to shove their fists in their ears at night to block out the sounds of their father throwing their mother around. For a moment, I hated those faceless children, for all that they had, and all I never would. Reluctantly, Rob took his jacket off and allowed Sarah to lead him back to the couch. Minutes ticked by. Rob called the police again. Once, twice, was told they were on their way. He slammed the phone down and cracked his knuckles, frowning. They always take a long time to attend domestic disputes, I told him. He stared at me, his eyes wide, and I knew he saw me as a foreign object, a strange not-child who shouldn't know the things I knew. It was flattering in a way, the status afforded me by my trauma, the elevation from pre-teen to old soul, I'd been living in the abyss with monsters for too long, and it showed. I was worried, of course. I loved my mother. She was all I'd had for as long as I could recall, and she was the sun around which my world revolved, my tragic queen, victimized by a tyrant king. I ached with the separation from her, the distance between us, even in this house just across the street. It was horrific, not knowing what was happening to her right now. Was she okay? Assuming she was, because she had to be, would she ever forgive me for what I'd done tonight? The shame I'd let in, the spotlight I'd put on us, the rage this would engender in my stepfather, the demons my actions would force her to face, the strength I'd shown that she had not, the mothering I was giving her that she'd failed to give me. I had no idea what I'd done. I just knew I'd had to do it. Finally, finally, sirens wailed in the distance. In moments, 
They were a cacophony, so loud it seemed incredible that the windows didn't rattle. Tires squealed on the road outside. Car doors slammed, voices murmured. The room we sat in lit up like a disco, strobing red around the edges of the closed curtains. Rob and Sarah helped me stand, wrapped the duna around me, and led me to the door. My house was gone. The tired old garden and ramshackle fencing remained. But nothing sat amid them now, save for empty concrete foundations, bright and smooth in the moonlight, as if they'd just been laid. I gaped. Was I hallucinating? Was I confused, looking at someone else's property and mistaking it for my own? I looked side to side, taking in the street. No, that was definitely where my house had been, and it wasn't there any more. I turned to Rob and Sarah. I opened my mouth to say something. I don't know what, what could I say, but stopped when I saw them. They stood close together, Sarah still holding Rob's arm, but their faces were slack, their eyes closed. Their chests rose and fell slowly. As I watched, Rob began to snore. Rob! Sarah! I clapped my hands in front of their faces. Nothing. They just went right on sleeping on their feet. Maybe I too was asleep. I pinched my arm hard. It hurt. Nothing around me changed one bit. This was all my fault. This was what happened when you told. Well, at least the police were here. They'd help me. I turned away from Rob and Sarah. In my shock at the disappearance of my house, I hadn't really looked at anything else. I'd seen red flashing lights and movement in my peripheral vision, had heard sirens and voices, but I hadn't focused on any of it. Hadn't, for that matter, actually seen any police at all. And weren't their flashing lights usually blue anyway? And now the street was empty and still. Humidity hung in the air, dense and oppressive. Belatedly, it occurred to me to wonder, where then was my mother? My heart sped up, hammering at my ribcage. Once more, adrenaline shot like fire through my veins. I struggled to breathe. A tear slipped down my cheek as I hesitated on Rob and Sarah's front doorstep. I had no idea what to do next. I wanted my mother so badly, I thought the need might kill me. Come back inside, small voices said in unison behind me. I jumped, a shriek escaping me, and spun toward the sound. Two boys stood in front of Rob and Sarah, looking up at me. Identical twins. Their dark hair rumpled from recent sleep their plump faces almost silver in the moonlight, pillow creases still visible on their cheeks. They couldn't have been older than five. Waking up to find their daddy has been hurt, or worse. Are you Max and Jack? My voice was too loud in the unnatural quiet. 
I wondered if the whole street were sleeping like Rob and Sarah, unconscious in the middle of whatever they'd been doing, unable to be roused. And if so, why not the whole suburb? The country? The world? Nobody left awake but me, adrift in an ocean of stars and silence. Me and the twins. Come back inside, one of them repeated. A black M was embroidered on the chest of his pajama shirt. Max. Jack's pajamas bore a J. What's going on? Why was I asking them? They couldn't possibly know. And yet, they didn't seem bothered by their parents standing unconscious behind them. Didn't seem to find my presence there, a crying stranger in the middle of the night, in an inside-out nightgown and with crazy hair, surprising. Come back inside, Jack said again, holding his pudgy hand out to me. Everything is going to be all right. Next time you come back out here, it will all be as it was, only better. We've done an exchange, Max said. It's a fair one. I put my hand in Jack's, suddenly quite sure I was dreaming. Max reached up and took one of his parents' hands in each of his. He led them into the house. They didn't open their eyes. Rob continued snoring. Jack pulled gently on my hand, and I followed the strange procession. The door swung shut behind us. I was asleep in Rob and Sarah's chair. I must be. But it was time to wake up. My mother needed me. Always she needed me. I felt guilty about betraying her secrets, and this dream was because of that. Only a dream and nothing more. I awoke to Tom and Jerry capering homicidally on the TV, dancing about with hammers and knives, carving each other into amusing shapes. Funny how that was okay, but a man and woman shouting was not. Funny how humans thought. None of it made sense. None of it did any good. It was all nonsense, really, and yet we were so adamant about our reality. And where had those thoughts come from? Sweetheart, Sarah kneeling at my elbow, time to go. There's a car waiting for you outside. Your mother's in it. A car? I stood, rubbing my eyes, the duna I'd been bundled in falling to the ground. My Milo sat on a table near my chair, cold now, a dusky skin forming on its surface. Sarah looked awkward. The police. I don't know why she was so uncomfortable. I knew what had happened, knew why I'd come to this stranger's house. No need to pretend it was a social call. No need to pretend anything. Maybe she wasn't sparing my feelings at all. Maybe now that it was all over, she just didn't want to remind herself of what she'd let in tonight. Oh, I reached out a hand. Thank you so much for helping. Sarah took my hand, wrapped it in both of hers, squeezed. She held it for a moment, 
looking at me as if considering keeping me, then thought better of it and released her grip. Good luck, Fiona, she said, walking me to the door. Lights strobed lazily outside, and they were blue, not red, and I had no idea why I thought they'd be otherwise. My mother was in that car, my mother, and I was already on the front stoop dashing toward her when I realized Rob was absent. I turned back to Sarah. Where's Rob? He fell asleep. He's got a big day at work tomorrow, so I didn't wake him, but I know he'd wish you all the best. Oh, well, tell him thanks, too. I hope all the commotion didn't disturb the twins. I waved as I pulled the car door open and slid inside. I was so absorbed in the awful first sight of my mother that I didn't fully notice Sarah's hesitant return of my wave that wilted before her hand was fully lifted, the way she wrapped her arms around herself as if cold and scurried back inside, slamming the door. Later, much later, I realized she'd never told me her boys were twins. A bundle of wet red sticks sat on the back seat of the police car, wrapped in a blanket, reaching for me. My mother. God, she'd gotten skinny. They hadn't cleaned her up any. Blood dribbled and spread on her pale skin, soaked her blanket, spattered her fingers and bare broken toes. Her mouth was a sunken crone's grin, her gums almost black with gore. Her face was swollen, one eye completely shut. Chinese food congealed in her hair. She glinted when she moved. Tiny shards of broken glass bedecked her skin like distant stars. The thought of stars scared me for some reason. Silly to be frightened of such nonsense, given what was in front of me right now. She was my mother, and I loved her, and I needed her to love me back. Nothing else mattered, none of this horror, none of our pain. I could bear this sight, live through this disaster, if only she would tell me it would be all right. Did I do the right thing? I begged her, needing absolution, needing the blessing of my goddess. You thought you were doing the right thing, she said with terrible kindness, and it turned out my pain did matter. Guilt, rage, loss, and regret flared in me. I'd done bad. Somehow I was wrong, and Kevin was right. What he'd reduced my mother to was true, and my view was a lie. Here and now, with what she did and did not say, she absolved him and damned me. I was just a child after all, not the sage creature I'd considered myself hours before, and I knew nothing of these adults, except that they were unfair, and I hated, 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 and loved, and there was very little space between those feelings, very little difference, just like those distant, inexplicable stars that were so far away 
and yet so close. The two police in the front of the car kept their silence, and I joined them in it. I looked out the window and watched the dark night slide by as my mother's breath whistled through her missing teeth, and she gasped with every bump in the road that jolted her injuries. The police station, a kind woman taking notes, photographing my mother's ravaged body, a women's shelter full of smiling, broken women, and their glassy-eyed, traumatized children. I was one of them, I supposed. A halfway house, a cozy little unit where my almost fully healed mother and I could live alone together in a safe, humble bliss. They were the moments after, and they were gone so fast. A sniff of freedom, a breath of fresh air and sunlight, and it was over. When my mother announced she was reconciling with Kevin, that he was a changed man, that she knew I'd see what she meant for myself, I wasn't surprised. It was always coming. In a way, it was comforting, the familiarity of the story, the ending that never changed. I went with her. What else could I do? My own father was a worse option even than Kevin. And then there was my mother. I wouldn't leave her, couldn't, unthinkable. Like severing a limb, like cutting out my heart, like snuffing out the stars. Who would look after her if not me? So back we went. Kevin greeted us at the door. When I walked in, he pulled me close to him and whispered in my ear, Don't be afraid, Fiona. We'll look after you now. I pushed him away. The most he'd ever said to me before now was, Get me a beer. He didn't frown, didn't smile, only maintained a beatific blankness that almost looked like open-eyed sleep. My mother clasped her hands under her chin, beaming. I told you, she said. Didn't I tell you he was a new man? I thought of red flashing lights, the empty space where my house should have been, and eerily calm twins telling me they'd made a fair exchange. Yes, I said. You did tell me that. And you were right. It's amazing the wrongness you can live with, the utter disconnect you can ignore. For so long I had gotten up, dressed, gone to school, come home, slept, rinsed and repeated, all against the backdrop of Kevin shouting at my mother and beating her. I'd lived with the anxiety, never sure what might set him off, when the calm would break and the stomping and smashing and abuse would begin, never sure where it would lead that time. Now I lived with constant, unchanging serenity. And even if I knew the thing that looked like my stepfather wasn't Kevin, was an exchange, well, what of it? How was that disconnect worse than the one I'd endured for so long? 
My mother was happy and unhurt for the first time in so long, her bones covered in meat rather than fractures. My nights were silent, and I need not leap out my bedroom window and hammer on the neighbor's doors, pleading for succor. Sometimes Kevin stares into space for a long time, and we can't rouse him. Sometimes he snores and sleeps while he's standing up. Sometimes there's blood on his boots. Not mud, but blood. Like he's walked through a slaughterhouse. And he says it's red cement mix from his concreting business. And we say we believe him because it's not my mother's blood, and that's good. And sometimes, rarely, but sometimes, he unplugs the phone, then talks into it in a language I've never heard the likes of before. And I hear someone talking back, faintly, on the other end of the disconnected line. E.T. phoning home never looked like this. My English teacher had once set us an assignment to read Anthony Burgess's A Clockwork Orange. She'd gotten in trouble. A bunch of parents and other teachers banded together to declare her choice of reading material unsuitable for our fragile minds, and the books were taken off us. But not before I'd had time to devour the story, wash myself in the language, bind it to my heart, and Feel it. The author's point seemed to have been that a man who can't choose ceases to be a man, that it's better to choose to be bad than to be forced to be good. I must respectfully disagree with Mr. Burgess. I don't know much about men, but I'll tell you what a child thinks. A child thinks that it doesn't make a lick of difference why her stepfather isn't beating her mother. All that matters is that her mother is not being beaten. I don't know where Kevin went. I don't know why something took his place. I don't know what that something is, and I don't need to know. I was already living with a monster. This, whatever this is, is better. It couldn't possibly be worse. There are no monsters worse than men. In a movie, there'd be some big reveal here. Some spaceship descended to Earth with insectile creatures boiling forth from it to announce their purpose. Some penalty to pay for the peace my mother and I now enjoy. Some cosmic lesson driven home with ray guns and the demise of the human race. But this isn't a movie. This is us, after the house came back. And I like it much better this way. The End That was Felicity Dockers' Us, After the House Came Back, as read by Maureen McLean. Maureen is an Austin musician plucking the bass with acoustic bands, the therapy sisters, and a proper cup of coffee. She earns her keep in the courtroom, interpreting real-life terrifying tales from Spanish to English. Thank you, Maureen. 
That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Our show was produced by our editors Philip Oldham and Scott Silk, and theme music by David Raiklin. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.